our, our Spanish ministry, Brother Suarez, and they were to come in and join us this morning, and I were to say, no ponga babadas para las manos en la taza de baño. I memorized that out of a, out of a uh, Spanish bathroom. It says, don't put hand towels in the toilet. It's the only Spanish I know. But if I could speak with, with, uh, in another tongue and just say Spanish words and be able to preach the gospel, even though I don't know Spanish, that's all I know, it would be like that was happening and it was spoken in a perfect dialect and with perfect grammar. So this is what happens and 3,000 people come to Christ. And then you also have a lot of preaching at the end of the chapter uh, of, of Acts chapter 2, which is where you see the characteristics of a disciple. And you see just the church in its very infant and purest form, you see the way really church should be and the way that we should be as disciples now listen we are 2,000 years down the road church is messy okay Christianity is messy we're people we're humans but if we could go back and rewind and go to the very beginning of the movie okay and look at Acts chapter 2 first I want to kind of do one of those how many of you enjoy those movies where that starts like at the end and then it'll go to the beginning and then it'll go right in the middle, and you're like, boom, like mind blown. You're like, whoa, that's so cool. How did they do that? And the whole time you're like wondering what's going on, but they, they give you enough to keep you intrigued until the very end. But they don't really end with the end. They end with the middle. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to blow your mind this morning. We're going to end with the middle. We'll start with the, with the ending. We'll go to the beginning, and then we'll end in the middle. The end of Acts chapter 2 is the characteristics of a disciple, okay? Peter preaches this message. There's the, the day of Pentecost. And then the result of it is 3,000 hearts are transformed, and this is what they are transformed into doing. Number one, it's there in your worship guide. You can write these down, the characteristics of a disciple. Okay, well, let's, uh, number one, they were devoted to grow in God's word. I'll give you that one. Let's read, though, Acts chapter 2, and we'll start in verse number 41, Okay. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and about the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods and parted to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily as should be saved. Number one, they were devoted to grow in God's word. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Number two, they were unified. The disciples were unified. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, a characteristic that you should have is being unified. Uh, it says there that they had, in verse 44, all things common. Okay, when the Bible says they had all things common, I don't think that they had, you know, their favorite, all, every single one of them, their favorite color was red. That's probably not what it's talking about. They probably didn't all have the exact taste in music. They probably didn't all have the exact uh, cl clothing that they wore. There was differences among them, but they didn't unite with their differences, they united in the things that they had com in common. 
And what did they have in common? They had in common the fact that Jesus Christ had given them power and that they were saved and the Holy Spirit had come upon them and they unified around that. If you're looking for disagreements, that's not a mark of a disciple. If you're looking to find what can unify believers, then you might be a disciple. Number three, they were unselfish or they are unselfish. Uh, they had all things in common, verse 45, and they sold their possessions and goods. I looked up in the Greek and Hebrew just to see if maybe there was something in there with the possessions and goods that maybe showed exactly what they were selling. And it said that possessions and goods was more than likely their property. In other words, their houses, their land, and then the things that they own. So basically everything. This is goods and possessions. If possession's not enough, we'll talk about goods. In other words, they found those that were in need, and for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they said, no longer do we care about our kingdom. We don't care about the car we drive, the house that we live in. If it means that if I can give that up, and, amen, the lights just came back on. The Holy Spirit is with us. And uh, it means if we can give it away, and it will further the gospel, so be it. I don't know how well that fits into American Christianity. Not so well. But they were willing to give up everything and did so for the furtherance of the gospel. Number four, they attended corporate worship. And you can fill in number five right behind that. They attended small groups. Okay, now I don't think they said, hey, did you, did you attend corporate worship this morning? Or uh, did you, are you, were you faithful to your small group this week? What I mean by that is you see that they were all together... Okay, verse number 46, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They did eat their meat with gladness and signaled this of heart. They were thankful, number six. They were thankful. Number 47, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Number seven, they have an attitude of worship. And number eight, they gain favor with people. Okay, we are to be a peculiar people, but people shouldn't look at Christians and disciples of Christ and go, I don't like them because of the way that they act. We ought to be, be act in such a way and conduct ourselves in such a way that we gain favor with the people. Eight marks of a disciple, but this is the end of the chapter, Acts chapter 2. This is what happened. This was a byproduct of... The middle of Acts chapter 2, which is Peter's first message. Does anyone know what a byproduct is? A byproduct, in other words, if I were to, uh, I, I'm not a coffee guy, I'm more of a tea guy. Okay, so in the morning, I like to put on a pot of water, and I, and I heat up that pot of water, and then once it gets past a certain temperature, it boils. Okay, and I need my tea to be hot, so therefore I boil the water. Well, when I boil the water, a natural byproduct of boiling water is steam. Very good. It's steam. Okay, I wasn't trying to get steam. That wasn't what I was trying to do. It was what I got as a result of boiling water. When we make a decision to follow Christ, a natural byproduct of us being a disciple of Christ should be these eight things. You don't try to aim for the eight things. Therefore, you're a disciple. I was like, okay, this week we need to work on being devoted to God's word, being unified, being unselfish, attending corporate worship, 
being faithful to small groups, being thankful, having an attitude of worship, and gaining favor with people. If we can work on those eight things, I guarantee you, you're going to fail if you try to balance eight things at one time. This comes as a byproduct of the day of Pentecost. Okay, now let's go to the beginning of the movie, okay? The beginning of the movie, Acts chapter 1, in the first verse. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, just like the song we sang, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. So now we have the day of Pentecost. Does anybody know? Is anyone in here in my Acts class? Everybody in my Acts class? Oh, we got a couple, okay? Teach Acts in the college. I gave, I asked the question, and no one got it right. Even the ones in my Acts class. I felt like the world's worst teacher uh, in the entire universe, okay? Does anybody know what Pentecost means? What does Pentecost mean? 50! Yes! We did it! You're not in my Acts class. But, uh, um... Pentecost means 50th, means 50th, okay, Penta, Pentagon, Pentateuch, 5, okay, 50th, it's 50 days past the Passover, is when Pentecost happened, it wasn't a spiritual holiday, it was a celebration of the pre-wheat post-barley harvest, okay, they just had a harvest of wheat, they're about to get into the barley harvest, so they're pretty excited and pumped, and so they have a party, and I don't know how Jewish people party, I've never been to a Jewish party, But I imagine at this party they weren't expecting for 3,000 people to get saved and follow Christ. I can just put that out there and imagine that wasn't the, uh, they were trying to get an end result of, man, we're just going to have revival across Pentecost. Okay, which leads us to point number one. There is a roadmap to becoming a disciple. There's a process to becoming a disciple. If we want these traits, which I would hope that in our hearts we would look at the way the disciples were in the early church and we say, man, I want that. I want to be unified. I don't want to have disagreements. I want to be unified. I want to want to go to church. I want to be devoted to the word of God and want to really become a true, bona fide, 100% New Testament early Christian Christian. And this is how he did it. Peter preaches this message, which in all accounts is probably one of the most unseeker-friendly messages, if you've ever read this, that I have ever read or heard. I mean, Peter just lays it down in part of this message, and it's pretty, it's pretty brutal, and you wouldn't expect that 3,000 people would come to Christ after preaching a message like this, but let me just tell you this, it wasn't Peter preaching the message. It was the Holy Spirit inside of Peter preaching the message. So listen, this isn't Peter preaching out of spite. He's not preaching out of hate. He's not thinking, man, I hate these people that aren't Christians, and I'm just going to let loose on them because I don't like them, and I don't like the way that they're living. No, Peter is preaching the truth. Number one, God meets us where we are. God meets us where we are. All of you are somewhere, aren't you? Where are you right now? Right now you're in church, right? We're asking God to meet us where we are today. Jesus is the Son of God. God was in heaven, and he looked down at earth and said, I'm going to love them, and he sent his Son to where we were. He went to... 
Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and the disciples, and he went to where they were and he said, hey, no longer would you, instead of fishing for fish, would you fish for men? Would you follow me? Would you become my disciple? But he went to where they were and called them out of what they were. But Jesus went to where we were because i got news for you. We can't go to where he is. It is impossible. There's not enough righteousness inside of me. In fact, there is no righteousness inside of me unless it is of Christ. But there's nothing good inside of me that can get me to the level where I can attain being on the level with God. God had to meet me where I was. Otherwise, there was no hope. And without him meeting us where we are, without him going to Pentecost, without Peter going to where the people were, we can't expect lost people to just come to us. I think we want the Philippian jailer to just, you know, run up to us and go, what must I do to be saved? That is not how Christianity works. We have to go to where they are. We have to get out of our comfort zone and go to where lost people that have no hope, that are on their way to eternal damnation with no hope in their life, we have to go to where they are and give them the hope. They're at Pentecost. No one is. No one at Pentecost was going to the festival of Pentecost to get saved. No one's going, I heard there's this guy, Peter, is going to be there. Let's all go. No, they were going to really just fulfill the desires of their flesh. They wanted to party. And they met at this day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover, to have a party. And Peter uses the opportunity to start preaching the word of God. Number one, God meets us where we are. Number two, God tells us the truth about ourselves. At first glance, this is not my favorite point, but whenever I study this out, this becomes my favorite point in the whole message. God tells us the truth about ourselves. I don't like it. Anyone ever been in an argument with their spouse? Okay, I was the only one. Um, Whenever I'm in an argument and my wife points out the truth to me and I hear it and my mind goes, there's got to be a way around this. You've got to find a way to argue this back and maybe turn the truth back on her. No one likes initially to hear the truth. It stuns us. It hurts us. And Peter is about to give over 3,000 people the truth about themselves. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 2 in verse number 23. Or let's look at 21 first. Never mind. Verse 14. Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice. He lifted up his voice. By the way, no PA system back then. He had to lift up his voice. He's about to be bold. He's about to preach the gospel. And by the way, all the other people are, are wondering what's going on. They're going, these guys have got to be drunk. The disciples weren't known at this time as bold people. <laughs> they were known as the opposite of bold. This is the same Peter standing up, lifting his voice. The same Peter that denied a junior high girl at a fire pit. Hey, aren't you one of those Jesus people? No. <laughs> <laughs> who, who, did you say Jesus? No, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, which Jesus? 
Jesus Christ, I saw you with him. You were with him. That wasn't me. That was another guy that was named Peter. What was a disciple? I mean, not a disciple. I'm not a disciple. I'm not one of him. Yes, you are, aren't you? No, in fact, watch this. And he just blurts out some curse words. I mean, that is like the definition of anti-bold. And we're not talking like a Roman soldier went up to him and stuck a sword to his throat and said, are you one of those Jesus followers? No, it was a junior high girl at a fire pit. And Peter wanted nothing to do with it. So unbold Peter is now lifting his voice 50 days, 60 days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when it's not popular to be one of those guys. You may get your head cut off. You're in danger of dying. And now filled with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the gospel and he says, I'm going to be bold. And the guy's like, these, these guys are drunk. They're out of their mind. Peter says, no, 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 it's like the third or ninth hour of the day, or the uh, third hour of the day, which was nine o'clock in the morning. So trust me, we're not drunk, okay? Let me just preach this message. And he preaches the message, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, lifted his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on and preaches a prophetic message that this day that's about to happen, happened in prophecy in the book of Joel, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, great. Well, that's, that's great news. But what do you mean, Peter? What's the save thing? Understand, we don't, there was no term born again or, or, or really saved at this point. What do you mean, Peter, saved? He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You know who I'm talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, him. Verse 23, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. Peter, do you really think that's how you ought to be reaching people? Yeah, I'm talking to you, you men of Israel. You know, the ones that crucified Jesus. I'm talking to you. Peter, I mean, if you want to get on their good side and have favor with them, you probably ought not to just, like, slam them with the truth like that. Peter wasn't doing this, by the way, out of spite. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't take this as, okay, we just need to go slam people with truth all over the place. You know, you're going to get on Facebook after this and just do truth bombs everywhere. That's not what this is talking about. Peter was saying... You were responsible for crucifying Jesus. In fact, he mentions it again in verse 36. That God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified. He says it twice in his message. God loves us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Because we don't like to tell the truth about ourselves I'm so glad that he does that at first it hurts and it stings but if we had a God in heaven who just lied to us and while I'm dealing with my guilt and my sin and my lust 
and all the things that make Matt Thistle a wicked person and the struggles I have in my marriage and in my family and in walking with God and doing the things that I know I should do but I don't do and the things that I know I should do but I try to do but I'm not really good at them. And if God just came up behind me and patted me on the back and said, hey, you're doing a good job down there. Keep it up. Because I'd go with a pat on the back straight to condemnation. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, tells us the truth about ourselves. He says, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short. The truth is, we're not good people. The truth is, we have come short. The truth is, our righteousness is as filthy rags. The truth is, we could never attain Christianity by ourselves. And although the truth is not fun, the truth is graceful. The truth is grace. Grace and truth, they go hand in hand. Grace is not, hey, good job, buddy. Keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. No, truth is, you are full of sin. And your heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. Oh, that hurts. But God loves us enough to tell us the truth about who you and I really am. The root of sin is creation over the creator. It's three things. It's pride. We can boil it down to one thing, pride, but it's creation over the creator. When we start worshiping the creation more than the creator, and I'm not talking about hugging a tree. What I'm talking about is the things that God created that we enjoy, unless your attitude is, God, thank you for this. You created this. Not, man, I have a pretty awesome family. No, God created your family. Your family is awesome because your God is awesome. Oh, I love the house that I'm in. Man, look what we did. We built this house. No, God gave you the ability to have that house. He is the creator. God, I can't believe that this is, or, or man, this is so great. I have such a great life. No, God, anything that you have is created by God. Number two, we are smarter than God. Now, if I was to give a test right now, anyone raise your hand? Who in here is smarter than God? I would hope, I just saw one's hand go in the back. Just kidding, I think they were stretching. They rose both hands like, me, I am! <laughs> she just ducked her head down. It's okay, I know it wasn't real. None of us would raise our hand and say, we're smarter than God, but we live that way. We have a clear presentation of how we're supposed to be living. Most of us don't live that way. In fact, all of us don't live that way. We have a tendency to think that we know better than God. Well, God, you don't understand. If I give to the church, I'm not going to be able to make my bills. Oh, you're smarter than God. <laughs> well, you don't understand. I'm just going to hold back a little bit and I'll just catch up on it. You're smarter than God? 
we think that God is smart for some things, but other... Now, none of us are actually thinking that. We all know as we go... In my mind, I'm going, yeah, I know there's some things that I've got in my life that I just take control of and I do and I... It's not that I actually think that I'm smarter than God, but I do act that way. Number three, a failure to acknowledge that God is the one that gifted us. This is a big one, isn't it? We think that our smarts, our gifting, our talents are all because we worked really hard at it and we got better. The gifts and talents that you have are all given to you by God. And the truth of the matter is that the truth will set you free. And the truth is that we are all sinners. There's nothing good inside of us. And anything that we have, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our possessions, are all gifts, are all attained through God. God is the one that lets you breathe the next breath that you have. And God loves us enough to tell us the truth. Uh, If you wanted to write this down, you could write this down. I, I probably should have put this in the notes, but you are never more free than when you have no secrets. You are never more free than when you have no secrets. Lost person, fellow believer, the thing that you're holding on to, the thing that the Holy Spirit is convicting you about, Thing that you're wondering if you should be honest about let me tell you something it is a lie from the devil it is a lie from the devil that says that you need to hold on to that and not let anybody know there's someone in here that you you've been going to you've been going to church for decades years and inside you know that you're lost you have not given your life to christ man if i go forward what's going to happen It's best if I keep this to myself. That is a lie from Satan. You will have no greater joy than when you have no secrets. Why is it the man that's committing adultery when he finally, even though it hurts, but when he finally comes clean, the backpack of sin comes off. The chains are broke free. You see, the chains aren't broke free by keeping the secret. The secret, when it is broken, that is when the chains break. And that is caused by truth. And truth alone. We do a good job in the human race of lying to ourselves, And we'll believe our own lie. But God loves us enough to tell us the truth. Which brings us to point number three. God offers forgiveness. Hey, aren't you glad he's just going to give you the truth? Hey, by the way, you're on your way to damnation. Thought I'd let you know that. What? (laughs) I mean, he loves us to tell the truth, but he tells us the truth because after the truth comes an offer of forgiveness. Peter, in uh, in verse number 38, Peter says unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You can break free from those chains. God has told you the truth about who you are. By the way, uh, we were the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. It's none doubted that not all 3,000 people that got saved that day, that they were there at Calvary when Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross. Have you ever seen Mel Gibson's The Passion? Okay? There's There's a scene in the movie in The Passion where Mel Gibson appears. 
Okay, and it's one scene and one scene only, and it's the scene where you just see Mel Gibson's hand clutching the hammer that drives the nail through Christ's hand. I would show it, but it's too graphic for an age-appropriate audience today. Mel Gibson wanted to be the one to show, I, I did it. Listen, you may not have been physically there, but your sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin put Jesus on the cross. I'm the one that nailed his hand to the cross. It was me, and that is the truth. But Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, even though, even though I was the one responsible, even though the truth is I put Jesus on the cross, he still, he commendeth his son, toward, he commended his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, for the remission of sins. He wanted to impute righteousness. What that word impute means, it's a big, massive term, impute. It's kind of like, you know, what does that mean? This is what impute means. He switched places. What I didn't have, or what I had, I put on him, and what he had, he gave to me. In other words, my righteousness, the Bible says, were his filthy rags. It wasn't going to get me to a relationship with heaven, but God met me where I was through his person, Jesus Christ, and imputed his righteousness, which means I took my filthiness. I, he took my sin. He took everything that was rotten about me, lifted it out of me, and put it on him, and then he took what he had, righteousness, pure holiness, and brought it and put it on me. Yeah, one amen. That's an amen, because without that, there is no hope. There is no reason to meet here this morning. There's no reason to get in the car and go out to eat. There is no reason to meet in your small group. There is no reason to go to your job on Monday. There is no reason to live except for the fact that Christ imputed his righteousness and gave it to us. If it weren't for that, there's no reason for us to be here because... Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in uh, verse 21, says this, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Do you understand what that means? That means a holy God that, by the way, you and I couldn't even look into the face of right now, because we'd be dead. That's how holy he is. Read the book of Revelation and understand that Christ is, I mean, that God is so holy, and he sits on his throne, and he, the, 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 cher, the seraphims and cherubims all surrounding him are constantly saying, holy, holy, holy. He cannot let unholiness in his sight. And yet he took his son, Jesus Christ, who was, by the way, 100% God. He took God, so God himself became sin for us. He literally defied his main characteristic. He is holy. That's what defines God. The biggest definition that I can come up with God is holy, holy, holy. No sin. Pure. It's white driven snow and even whiter than that. Clear. Became sin for us. Why? Because he looked down in heaven and went, oh, they're so cute. Aww. No! I didn't look down to heaven and go, wow, look at those humans. They're doing like things and stuff. <laughs> they're so cute down there. I know they're like full of sin and corruptness, but I mean, you can't help but look at them and go, aw. 
No, we were in rebellion against God. We hated him. We turned our back. We spit in his face. And even though we did that, he loved us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That doesn't make sense. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> Mind blown. God did something that doesn't make sense. He made a decision to love us. By the way, that is true love. Love isn't falling like, oh, I love you. I can't help it. God didn't say like, oh, I can't help but love him. <laughs> I just need to go over here and love him because I'm so cute. No, God looked down and said, you're ugly. You're disgusting. And when I see you, I despise you. But yet, I love you. We can't do that. <laughs> I can't look at someone and despise them and then say, by the way, I love you. But God's infinite. And in his, where he can't even look at sin, he still sent his son to die for us and became sin. God tells us the truth about who we are, but then he also imputes righteousness. He offers forgiveness, and his righteousness becomes our righteousness, which, by the way, means that his life becomes our life. That means the life he lives, we can live that life because we have his righteousness. It means his joy becomes our joy, which is true joy, pure joy, full joy. His love becomes our love. We can actually love with real love. It's not just a made-up fantasy love or a lustful love. It's an actual true and pure love, and it means that even though someone else is unlovely, and someone that you meet in the street or, or someone that you meet at your workplace that is ugly and unworthy of love. When I mean ugly, I don't mean like physical appearance. I mean like ugly in their sin or, or the way that they act makes you mad or it gets you irritated. You can actually love them. So the person you say, I could never love that person. That person has done too much. Wrong. If you have his righteousness, which is imputed to you, you can love the unlovely. His love becomes our love. His eyes become our eyes. His burden becomes our burden. God has a burden for lost souls. Is that your burden today? Will you walk out from here and have a burden for the lost? Sometimes whenever we, uh, we leave here, we've got to go run to Walmart, you know, and pick up one last thing that we, we weren't forgetting about, you know, like sweet tea or... You know, like, oh, man, we didn't have sour cream. We'll go to Walmart. Can you imagine if you went to Walmart today, and instead of the name tag just saying Matt or Bob or Susan, it says, Susan, I'm on my way to hell. Thank you. Have a nice day. Do we look at the world through his eyes? Because that's the eyes of God. God looks at the world not as, thank you for serving me today, I'll take my sour cream and go. He looks at those and he says, do you know Christ? Being nice and shaking the person's hand and saying, have a blessed day today. That's not enough. As they have a blessed day on their way to hell. There's a lost and dying world out there. 
And God loves us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves, and he loves them enough to have you tell them the truth and then offer them a way to become a disciple. And then lastly, number four, we must make a choice. We must make a choice. Verse number 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, Peter is preaching, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And then he picks it up in verse 37. Or not he. He ends his message there, and in verse 37, it says, Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. ESV says they were cut in their heart. You ever been cut before? What happens when you get cut? All of your attention turns to the cut that you have. It hurts. It causes you to action. You go, oh my goodness, I'm cut. What do I do? Remember when I was a kid, I uh, didn't have any friends, so I still don't, but I would throw a baseball up in this big field that we had, and I would try to throw it far enough to where I could run and dive and, like, make, like, you know, the World Series game-winning catch, okay? That's how much of a loser I was. I didn't have anyone to throw the ball to me, including my father. <laughs> I'm okay. I told myself I'd make it through this part. And there was one time when I threw the ball, and I, I dove, and I didn't know there was a landmark, a metal landmark that was sticking up about this far out of the ground. And as I dove, I ripped my arm completely open. Not to make anyone wheezy here, but then I, maybe a little bit. I walked into the, uh, the kitchen, and, and my dad said, what were you doing out there? I was like, I was playing by myself because you wouldn't play with me. And uh, he said, okay, he says, well, let's wash this cutout. And, and I stuck my arm underneath the sink and, uh, you know, was washing it out, and there was spaghetti from yesterday there. And I was like, <laughs> and uh, I just thought I'd add that part. That really wasn't necessary, anything to do with the message. But I, I got ripped open. I'm going to tell you something. I wasn't thinking about anything else but the cut that had just happened, and it made me sick. It made me wheezy. The Holy Spirit, when he talks to a soft heart, whether you're saved or unsaved, will cut you. And it hurts, because the truth hurts. But those with soft hearts do this. They were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There is always a response when the gospel is preached. By the way, the gospel is being preached right now. Whether you're saved or unsaved, you will make a response to this message. I'm not saying you'll come forward. I'm not trying to get people to come forward to the invitation. What I'm saying is a response meaning once you leave here, you will either harden your heart or you will soften your heart. For those of you who do not know Christ, and when I say you say, well, I, do, I know him, I know Christ. I'm not talking about do you know his name. When I married my wife, I knew, before I married my wife, before I, I even spoke one word to her, I knew who she was. Because like when all the guys were in the dorm and we were talking, like, hey, have you seen that Denise Rodriguez? I was like, yeah, she's hot. When she, they said Denise Rodriguez, I knew who they were talking about. But I didn't know her. I didn't know who she was. I didn't know what made her tick, what buttons to push to make her mad. <laughs> I mean, 
what buttons to push to, to make her feel loved and cherished by her husband? I didn't know who, I didn't know her. In fact, after eight years of marriage, I'm still getting to know her more. My heart prayerfully and gracefully through the grace of Jesus Christ will become more softened towards my wife and I want to know her more and grow with her. When you hear the gospel, you as a Christian either walk out of here saying, eh, it's great, or go, God, I want to know you more. I want to know you more. You never reach the part where you say, God, I know you enough. And to not make a response is to respond. You can't stay in the middle. Those that do not know Christ as their Savior, I would say to you today is the day of salvation. You know they make caskets in all sizes? I'm not trying to scare you into salvation. I'm just telling you the truth. I mean, I'm not, everyone does know that it's pointed on the man who wants to die. I'm not giving you something that you don't know. How many of you, by the way, think this is your year? Yeah, no one. That's, yeah, no one. No one ever raises their hand when you say, how many of you think is this, this is the year you're going to die? No one says, yeah, me. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to think that. No one wants to think that, but we all know that it's possible. Don't put it off. Don't harden your heart. Don't walk out of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and go, I'll wait another day. to the gospel. Don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. Believer, don't harden your heart. Soften it. There's a uh, proverb called a, it's a Puritan proverb. It says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel is so powerful, it will move you. The worship team's going to come. As they come, I'm going to continue to preach. We're doing something a little bit different. Notice in the 9 o'clock when we did this, everyone was like, what in the world? Are people, people are already coming down to the altar? Maybe I need to go. No, no one did that. The same gospel, the same sun that melts the ice, hardens the clay. When the sun shines or when you get hit with the gospel, hit with the truth, and God loves you enough to tell you who you are, something will happen. There's not a sermon that goes by when Brother Eric gets up and preaches and he preaches the truth, and I hear the word of God preached that I don't go, that was good, not for me. That was good. There was probably a lot of people in there that needed that. We all need it. Every week. Every day. And every day you're walking this way or you're walking this way. You can't stay in the middle. You will respond to the gospel. And God loves you so much he wants you to respond the right way. He set it up in a way that he's, tr 
He doesn't want to push you away. He's going to meet you where you are. For some of you, that's right here. In this moment, at Gospel Life Baptist Church, 600 Garland Avenue, Hot Springs, Arkansas, 71913. God is meeting you where you are as you sit in the pew and you will make a decision today to follow him or harden your heart. There it is. The roadmap is given to us. It's right there. We, do you want unity, believer? Do you want to be devoted to the word of God? Do you want to wake up in the morning and go, I can't wait to get into the word of God and let it richen my life? So we all go through seasons. Understand that. There are times of the season where the fruit is smaller than other seasons. That happens. But do you have a desire? Do you look forward to coming to church or is it a chore? Are you still one of those people on the fringe going, ah, small group's not for me. I don't really enjoy the fellowship of other believers in another home. I'm telling you, you're missing out. You are missing out. Well, it's just not for me. It is for you. It was for them. Was it named small group? They enjoyed being around other believers and being honest with one another and being accountable to one another the light, most life-changing things for me has been being a part of a small group, not leading a small group, being a part of a small group and letting, letting other people know because the ground is level at the cross and, let's, and all of us telling the truth about ourselves and being honest with one another and saying, yeah, me too, I messed up. Yeah, I messed up too. You messed up? Yeah. What are we going to do to fix that? Let's hold each other accountable. That's what it's all about church in its purest form, Acts chapter 2. But it all takes this, it, it takes surrendering to his will. Starts in, in surrendering to your will, really. Taking your will, putting it aside and saying yes to Jesus. Would you surrender to him? Let's all stand, heads bowed and eyes closed. Would you uh, take this time, you could you don't necessarily have to have your eyes closed. You can have your eyes open. I'm fine with that. Would you sing with our worship team as we talk, as we sing about surrendering? Would, that, would you let that be your choice? Would you soften your heart this morning and not harden? Would you surrender? Would you sing? Joe?